When I'm not hosting this podcast, I am writing books, but it is really hard for me to write when I'm at home, so I like to find remote cabins in the middle of nowhere to just hang out and write. But I hate the idea of my house just sitting empty, doing nothing but collecting dust and definitely not collecting checks. And that's why I'm an Airbnb host. It's one of my all-time favorite side hustles. Other popular side hustles are awesome too, don't get me wrong, but they often involve big startup costs. By hosting your space, you're monetizing what you already have access to. It doesn't get easier than that. And if you're new to the side hustle game and you're anxious about getting started, don't worry because you're not in this alone. Airbnb makes it super easy to host. I mean, if I could do it, you could do it. And your home might be worth a lot more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com host. Did you know that some travel credit cards offer 10x points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. I'm Nicole Lappin, the only financial expert you don't need a dictionary to understand. It's time for some money rehab. I'll state the obvious. There are many advantages to having money. Money opens opportunities for yourself, sure, but also for the causes you believe in. Take, for example, Jordan Freed, my guest today. Jordan and his co-founders casually bankrolled their nonprofit, Israel Friends, with a couple million bucks to send aid to Israel. But as Jordan will tell you, you don't need a million bucks to make a difference. Jordan walks through the strategy he used to build a network of helpers of all kinds and how you can too. Before that, though, Jordan talks us through what he was able to accomplish in Israel by deploying his own network. And let me tell you, I was totally awestruck. Here he is. Jordan Freed, welcome to Money Rehab. Thanks for having me, Nicole. Just two weeks ago, you were living in the software entrepreneur paradise that is Puerto Rico, focused on an online business. And then the attacks happened on October 7th. What happened next for you? I got a phone call from a really close friend, a neighbor here in Puerto Rico who is Israeli and served. And it was a distressed phone call to help get him and some friends back to Israel. He knew I had some contacts in the aviation industry. And next thing I knew, I was chartering an Airbus A330, filling it with 150 IDF reservists, civilians, Nicole, civilians. I mean, we had uh, real estate agents on this flight, accountants, mothers, fathers who were living normal lives on October 6th and October 7th. Everything changed. And these people are going back. They're being called up to go rejoin their units, get necessary training and defend the Jewish people in the state of Israel. So surreal experience with 17 tons of cargo on that plane. And I actually unexpectedly got on the plane as well and ended up spending all of last week in Israel understanding the reality of the situation on the ground. And unfortunately, it's much worse than I ever could have expected. Can you tell us more about that and what it felt like to be there? This is probably the scariest time for Jewish people since 1948. I was in Kiryat Shmona on the Lebanese border. Um, rockets were flying overhead. We were constantly in shelters. I was in Selim in the south on the Gaza Strip, uh, 100 meters from the fence of the Gaza Strip. 
Ashkelon, all of these towns. There's 22 towns surrounding the Gaza Strip were being attacked from the south. We are now being attacked from Iraq as well. Iraq is joining Hezbollah in this fight. And there's 2 million Arab Israelis inside of Israel that if even only 1% of them, Nicole, rise up against the Jewish people, it will be a number so great that would be over 20,000. It would be a number so great that it would overwhelm the Israeli National Police Force. And that's a war. How do you fight an internal war, a war on the north, the war from the east, and a war from the south all at once? This is an existential threat to the existence of our state, to the existence of our people. And frankly, what's terrifying for, I think, every single Jewish person, and it should be for non-Jewish people in the world as well, is we are only safe because Israel exists. That's the one thing that makes us safe. So it's a very vulnerable time. Were you scared? Was I scared? Uh, it's hard to be scared when you're standing next to a six-year-old who this is everyday life for her. Uh, I was with a mother. Her name's Orit and her two children in a shelter in Kiryat Shmona. I wanted to cry looking at them. I did. I tried to hide it. Um, these girls are on bunk beds stacked three high. They spend 12 to 24 hours of the day down there. They don't have toys. They don't have television. They are they're camped out in a bunker waiting for rockets to stop flying overhead, waiting for a signal that it's safe to go back to their homes. They have less than 10 seconds to get to the shelter in Kiryat Shmona. It's not like Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv's luxurious from the time the sirens go. You have 90 seconds to get to a bunker. So we were walking slowly when the sirens were going off in Tel Aviv, but still walking to the shelter. But you're there with women and children and this is just normal. No six-year-old, no four-year-old, no child should go through something like that. I couldn't let myself be scared in that moment because these are such incredibly strong people. I I respect them and I love them for that. And I assume you've been to Israel before. Israel has the spe a very special place in my heart. I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the state of Israel. My grandfather fled Germany in 1933. He was three years old with his father. His entire family said, you're crazy. You're panicking. This will never get this bad. They were taken to the trains to Auschwitz and murdered. And thanks to my great grandfather who got my my grandfather and his brother out, my family survived. Uh, and my grandmother's American, my Saba and Hebrew uh, grandfather, Israeli. It's for every Jewish person, whether they've been there or not, it's it's that comfort and safety of knowing that they will step in should never again happen again. When Jews started getting persecuted in Ethiopia, Operation Solomon were these hauled out El Al airlines where we took the Ethiopian Jews from Israel. We have a massive African-Israeli population in Israel now. They're called the Lost Tribe of David, but Jewish people from Ethiopia who were persecuted who came over to Israel. The Israeli army stepped in to protect them. When uh, the Jewish people of Ukraine were vulnerable during the Russian invasion, um, Israel opened up its doors. The Jews, come back here. You can be safe here. We, we will protect you. It's an unbelievable comfort knowing that we have an army. We have a police force. We have firefighters. We have people looking out for us. We're only 15 million people globally in a world where, once again, we've become a hated minority it's a place of comfort. Yeah, I agree. I am a dual citizen. And I think like if shit gets really crazy, I can always go home. And that's a real existential threat right now. I've been to Israel many times as well. I've never felt scared there, despite this always being a part of life. I, I almost felt that people celebrated more because this 
idea of who knows if there's going to be tomorrow is always hanging over your head. I mean, have you ever felt anything like this in any of your past trips? I don't think Israel's ever been in the situation it's in right now. It is unbelievably complicated. If we go in and try to get the people who massacred 1,400 Jews on October 7th, we're facing an imminent invasion from the north. Are we ready for that? There are threats. The rhetoric is escalating on a daily basis that Iran will step in. There's Chinese warships coming into the region. American warships are being attacked by Yemen, by Syria. Israel is preemptively taking out the runways in Aleppo and Damascus. We find ourselves caught in the center of a very complicated, a very complicated situation. As you said, I, you know, three weeks ago, two weeks ago, I was living a normal life and I, I don't have any credentials to be doing what I'm doing right now. I've never chartered an airplane of this size and done the logistics coordination of we're now over our second plane just landed. We've now brought over 150,000 pounds of gear and humanitarian aid, defensive gear, bulletproof vests, helmets. These are going to civilians. That's, it's such a surreal thought. All right, let's go step by step through how Israel Friends, your aid organization, happened. So first, we've been hearing a lot about the wrong type of aid, either people sending money to places that don't need it or worse, use the money against Israel or sending equipment and it's the wrong equipment. So how did you figure out what was needed? So there's some incredible people on planet Earth. First, like I just have to applaud. I think if we're looking for silver lining because all of us have been crying and all of us have been feeling really sad and so many of us have friends and family that are affected by this. I had friends that were at the rave. I have cousins that we still haven't heard from that we likely will never hear from. It's it's a bad situation. And I think that the silver lining is, I don't think I've ever seen our people ever united in the way that we are united right now. You know, field hospitals are being set up. There's tactical gear that is really, we're just talking about, it's going to get cold in Israel. For anyone who's ever been to Israel knows it gets a little bit chilly in the winter, even though it is in the desert. And they just need thermal protective gear. Families have been evacuated from their homes and they have nowhere to stay. There's not enough hotels to put these people in. So there's so much need right now, but the effort has been really uncoordinated. One of the reasons I got on the plane to actually go to Israel was we wanted to be different. I wanted to ask first and make sure that the stuff we were going to give was going to get used and then give, right? What do you actually need? What is the spec? Give us the actual requirement of what it would take to get this in the country so that we can work hand in hand with meches, with customs, and actually get this stuff cleared and get in the country. Our organization actually started as WWF Worldwide Friends, which is the 501c3 parent organization. And we had our first mission as Ukraine. We were able to get over $30 million of humanitarian aid into Ukraine. Uh, but the great tragedy of Ukraine is if you look at the borders, there are still hundreds of tractor trailers filled with gear that was donated, supplies, that is never going to get used because it wasn't properly processed. It wasn't sent in the proper ways or through the proper channels. It was just people blindly giving, but without going through the normal channels and checking that this could go to uh, a civilian or that was safe to be used, uh, that the tourniquets met the medical standards set by the Ministry of Health. So for us, I think what separates Israel Friends is working closely with the government to understand what the actual need is, and then going to coordinate the effort to make sure that the equipment that we're getting there is, in fact, the right equipment, and then clearing it through customs within two to three days and getting it to people. So if you give today, we can have the thing that you gave you know, in the hands of the person you're trying to give it to within 48 to 72 hours, which for me is 
it's urgent because I know these people and this is very personal for me, as I'm sure it is for you. Let's go back to some of those nefarious money trails. We've seen some donation scams, fraud. I mean, I think there's a special place in hell for those people. What have you seen? Without naming any names, we were involved in a project just three days ago to try to get a certain type of vehicle over that is missing in Israel. The freight and the vehicle was already paid for, yet the company that was asking for the donation was double dipping, was asking for more money to cover the freight when I had proof that the freight was paid for. This is what we're up against. People are blindly giving when some people are trying to profit off of the war. Now, perhaps they were trying to use the extra money to buy more supplies themselves. I don't know, but I do know that they were trying to double charge for just basic shipment and shipping freight is very expensive with gas prices the way they are. To give you an idea, these airplane charters that we're doing cost close to a million dollars for each charter. That's one way, Nicole. That's just one way just to yeah. get a plane from LAX to, to Israel. So these aren't cheap. And unfortunately, there are uh, there's some bad actors there. Why did you start your own organization rather than just work with one that already exists? I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a startup guy. I have a distaste for sitting around talking and being theoretical. I don't want to deliberate on what I think will happen. I want to just figure out what the problem is today and solve it. So we operate like a startup, even though we're non-for-profit. When we get a million dollars, we spend a million dollars. And we, we've raised millions so far. We're very fortunate. I seeded it with a couple friends with a few million dollars of our own capital just to front it, to start chartering the first planes. And you know, there's been a beautiful outpouring. But Nicole, there's amazing Jewish organizations that I think, frankly, are in denial or somewhat delusional about how existential this crisis is. Many of them are not on the ground. I'll tell you the hotel I stayed at in Israel, there were five rooms booked and we were three of them. There's no one there. The other two were CNN. There's nobody there. There's nobody there helping. We are first boots on the ground. And while I take pride in that, it also terrifies me at how few people are taking this particular uh, conflict as seriously as I think we need to be taking it. Because I saw it myself, I was one kilometer away from it. They are preparing to enter northern Israel. They will be in the streets. There'll be sh bullets going by in Aroma Cafe, my favorite coffee shop in Israel. This is what we're facing. We're going to lose a piece of our country if we do not come together and bring international attention to this and help our fellow Jewish brothers and sisters, and not even Jewish brothers and sisters. I'm talking about Israelis, the, the Bedouin Israelis, the Arab Israelis. They don't want to live under a Hamas rule or they want to live in a democracy. They want freedom. And this is important for anyone that believes that terrorists are bad and democracy is good. This is an issue that I would hope they would care about. Talk about those planes. You said that no one was there. I imagine getting there is also an issue. How did you manage to organize these charters? It was not easy. Our flight was canceled three times. And when I finally realized why it was being canceled, it was actually the insurance providers. So first chartering a, an Airbus turns out to be pretty similar to chartering a propeller plane. You call an airplane broker, they find an aircraft, they tell you the price and you agree to pay it. It's just a lot more zeros. We chartered a plane, but then they kept canceling our flight to which I realized it was not them. It was the insurance company that no longer wanted to land their aircraft in Israel. Understandably so. There's rockets flying overhead. We paid a one-time war insurance premium in the six-figure range just to land our aircraft there. It was over $100,000 just to land the airplane there. But we couldn't put these reservists down in Amman. 
or in Lebanon. Of course we can't, right? You see the situation that's happening right now. They're not going to be safe in any of these places. We had to put the plane down in Israel. We managed to do it. It was safe when we landed. Israeli air traffic control in the Iron Dome. It's a miracle. The Iron Dome is an absolute miracle. I was in the street watching it happen in real time. It took a massive team effort. I can't take all the credit for Nicole. There's an incredible group of volunteers behind me that dropped everything when this happened. And when I told them my crazy idea of like, hey, let's get this airplane, they all got behind me and said, okay, cool. I'll work on the cargo. Okay, cool. I work on the passenger manifest. Our tickets were issued at LAX in the main passenger terminal. They were handwritten tickets. We got through TSA with handwritten tickets. It was, it was incredible. And then once you got on the ground, how did you physically get all this equipment and stuff to the people who needed it? Again, a massive logistics group of volunteers that came out of nowhere. I've never cleared customs before with this much equipment. I didn't even know what a bill of lading was before this. A (laughs) bill of what? A bill of lading, a document that goes on a shipment. It's a legal document that tells you what's in the shipment. It's legally required to ship something. I didn't know what freight forwarding was or what a, who a freight forwarder was. We learned all what of this. What is that? It's somebody who actually coordinates getting freight on an aircraft and getting it through customs into the particular country that you need. You need a freight forwarder. They they put the entire cargo manifest. There's a, a cargo manifest and a passenger manifest. You basically have to have an itemized list of everything that's on the plane. It's value right? How much does it worth? How much does it weigh? Uh, You have to put it together. There's an entire industry dedicated to this. We couldn't have done this without incredible people who just like came out of the woodwork in the Los Angeles area, in the San Francisco area, in the New York area, and then in Israel itself, just people who heard about what we were doing and helped. They're like, you know, we'll, we'll get this out of customs for you. We'll get this into a warehouse for you. We now have a warehouse in Los Angeles, in New York, and in Israel. So we're operating in all three of those locations. If you saw the videos, there's hundreds of volunteers just picking and packing and palletizing, putting stuff in duffel bags. And it's teamwork. Teamwork makes the dream work. So my little dream was to help just one friend get back to Israel. And it turned out to be thousands of people and hundreds of thousands of pounds of equipment. And I guess that was just the beginning. And now we're we continue to go. Teamwork makes a dream work for sure. But money also is required to make this dream work. It's certainly not free. And as you say, it's not cheap. So how have you been fundraising? And what have you learned around best practices for convincing people, I guess, to give money? Because that can be a skill set that's used beyond even this. So there's a couple things I'd say on this. Hold on to your wallets. Money Rehab will be right back. Money Rehabbers, you have money hidden in your house. Yeah, just hiding there in plain sight. Okay, so I don't mean you have gold bars hidden somewhere in walls, treasure map style, but you do have a money-making opportunity that you're just leaving on the table if you're not hosting on Airbnb. It's one of my all-time favorite side hustles. By hosting your space, you are monetizing what you already own. It doesn't get easier than that. For me, hosting on Airbnb has always been a no-brainer. When I first signed up, I remember thinking to myself, self, you pay a lot of money for your house. It is time that house returned the favor. And to get real with you for a sec, I felt so much guilt before treating myself on vacation because traveling can be so expensive. But since hosting on Airbnb, I feel zero stress for treating myself to a much needed vacation because having Airbnb guests stay at my house when I'm traveling helps offset the cost of my travel. So it's such a win-win. I mean, if I could do it, you could do it. And your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Do you ever get FOMO, fear of missing out? Well, do you ever get FOMO Tupita, fear of missing out on the perfect hire? If so, I have the antidote. It's LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In any given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites, and that adds up to a serious squad of awesome candidates. LinkedIn has over a billion professionals on the platform, and these candidates are super qualified. So much so that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within just 24 hours. I work with LinkedIn Jobs for all of my dream team needs, so they're hooking up money rehabbers at linkedin.com slash MNN. Go there and you can post your job for free. That's linkedin.com slash MNN, as in Money News Network, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And now for some more money rehab. First, I think it's a Mr. Rogers quote that when tragic things happen in the world, look for the helpers. And there are so many unbelievable people who are coming out of the woodwork who aren't even volunteering their time, but are just opening up their their capital to us. We've had several billionaire donors, some I can name. The CEO of Rockstar Energy, the founder, Russell Wiener, has been unbelievably generous and gave us a million-dollar check just to help us get our first plane off the ground. The donors have been fantastic. We, we're in desperate need of more donations. Unlike some of the big agencies, we don't manage capital, Nicole. We don't have treasury bonds that we're earning interest on. We're not structured like an endowment. We, When we receive money, we spend the money. The war is now, right? There will be many phases of this war, but winning the war is the top priority. Restoring peace, making sure that land is secure and that people can return to their homes. That's priority number one. There will be a whole nother phase of rebuilding. That'll cost billions of dollars to rebuild Israel. You're talking about entire kibbutzim burnt to the ground. The people that survived need new homes. We've been successfully raising, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars every single day, some days over a million. And we have immediate need for all of it. You know, we have a couple of really big initiatives that we care about, but you're right, money. Money is the enabler that makes all of this possible. And fortunately, some of us and my co-founders we are in fortunate situations having been, you know, successful entrepreneurs that we could make the initial capital available to the organization to get it off the ground. Yeah, I've long said a dream without a plan is just a wish and wishes are awesome, but they don't pay the bills or send, you know, millions of dollars of aid to Israel. So thank you for doing that plan and creating essentially a pop-up charity and, and treating it like a startup to cut through a lot of this red tape and bullshit I'm assuming that a lot of these organizations are dealing with. You've also partnered with key Israeli authorities, is that right? Including the Ministry of Defense, Ministry of Health, and IDF to deliver essential supplies. How did you get in touch with the government there? Turns out when you roll in on an Airbus 330 <laughs> that you rented, people want to meet with you. So we didn't just land, we landed Fair. in style. And there was press there. They greeted us. And my ask was, I wanted to actually see, I wanted to see the border. I wanted to see Gaza. I wanted to see the rave. Really painful to see those things, but I needed to know myself. I wanted to meet the people that were still living in fear. I wanted to meet the mayors. And then I wanted to meet the members of the cabinet because Israel is known to have a very dysfunctional government over the last couple of years. I think we've had four elections in five years. We can't play politics right now. This is not a time to point fingers. We can do that after the war. There's some people probably in the government who should be lined up and questioned very sternly and who likely will never work in politics ever again as a result of having this happen. But this is not the time for that. 
I don't care about bureaucracy. I don't care who the prime minister is. I don't care who the cabinet is. I need partners that can help me get stuff done. I need lists of requirements and tasks. Give us those missions and we will go do it. So fortunately, we have a much better understanding of the actual need on the ground. We have great partners in the cabinet and the prime minister himself is aware of our operation and what we're doing and we're going to continue to do it. But we won't be stopped because it's not the government we're trying to help here. It's the Israeli people. It's our people. It's the Jewish people. And they depend on us right now. And call me naive, but I think we can save our people. I think it'll take every single one of us, Nicole. I think it'll take every single one of us to join together, to unify. And thank, thank God, thank God people are coming together around that. Every person, every human being deserves to live a life of peace, to have safety and security for their family and their loved ones. And I know the Palestinian people want that. I know the Jewish people want that. We need to rid the planet of, of terror organizations, period. And let's pray for a, a swift resolution. And what more do you think the business community could be doing? I mean, we've seen other mentions come out from Bill Ackman, Mark Rowan, and beyond. Uh, is there more that can and should be done? More people that should step up? Like, can't Robert Kraft just buy a fucking island or something? <laughs> uh, the, the business community is stepping up, right? I mean, uh, I think that people are learning a lesson in real time. I mean, uh, the internet is incredible. This new Twitter handle, Stop Anti-Semitism, we're not affiliated with them, but they've reported anti-Semitic acts to dozens of employers who have reprimanded those employees and relieved them almost effective immediately. I think we need to collectively try to, as, as capitalists, as entrepreneurs, problem solve, because unfortunately governments fall short in doing this in a lot of cases. There are some real problems that have to be solved economically. I'll tell you the biggest one right now, Nicole. Every single working, able-bodied young adult in Israel is in uniform on a military base to protect the state of Israel. Their shops are closed. Their e-commerce stores are not operating. Their TikTok and Instagrams are not uploading new content with sponsors. Their podcasts are not working. It's an entire country that has paused itself, an entire economy. The Israeli shekel just has paused itself in defense of its land, in defense of its people. It is going to have, the longer the war goes on, a monumental impact on the Israeli economy. So as the business community is contemplating how to help, we need to figure out how to help the Israeli economy. We need to figure out how to help the shekel. Is that you know a new Israeli shekel on the blockchain? Is it a cryptocurrency? Is it a, a government-issued war bond for us to fundraise and backstop the economy or fill in the gaps during this time? Is that a, a drive to buy Israeli goods like we do here, made in America? Are we going to start buying made in Israel? What can we do to help our family, to help that country that was attacked and is now facing imminent attack from hostile enemies on a tiny country the size of Puerto Rico, the size of New Jersey, situated between Lebanon, Egypt, Syria, Jordan. It's a very scary situation. And as a business community, there, there are things we can be doing. What do you think should happen to the shekel, of course, the currency of Israel? Or should people be buying Israeli bonds right now? 
the shekel, the shekel is now four shekels to the U.S. dollar. It's it's crashed quite a bit. There is going to be almost imminently a recession, a massive slowdown in growth in Israel as a result of this. I mean, we're talking population decline. Fourteen hundred Jews slaughtered in one day in Israel is the equivalent of fifty thousand Americans dying in a, a terrorist attack in the U.S. I mean, that is a massive dent on a, a, a country's population. So uh, I do think there needs to be a government bond that it raises much needed capital. Keep in mind, there's no Speaker of the House right now in the United States, so it's not like emergency funding is getting approved. You need a Speaker of the House in America to propose a $10 billion aid package. So it's not like there's $10 billion in aid coming to Israel like there was going to Ukraine. They don't have that money coming right now. So Israel's all on its own. And if we could raise $10 billion as a Jewish people, great. That's what we need to do right now. And if someone has a way to issue that bond or Israel can issue that bond, we should be raising for that bond. We're proposing some of these things to the government directly, but these are the type of creative solutions. I, I do think there should be a version of the shekel on the blockchain to increase its utility, the ability to do cross-border payments with it to help with the economy. Israel is already a very digitized economy. I do believe in the solutions around Web3 and decentralization. That's sort of the world I came from before this. So I would love to see some of those solutions implemented here, but we'd have to move quickly to do it. And perhaps for now, it'd be the old fashioned, just a bond. Doesn't have to be on the blockchain, but just a bond that could raise some capital. So if we can zoom out for a second, not everyone is going to have a Rolodex like yours, who's listening, you casually said you just had some contacts in aviation, but anyone can build a network of powerful people and relationships in business are extremely important that this is not breaking news, but also important when you need help uh, and during times like this. So for people who want to help, let's break it down for them. So if we continue to zoom out over your career, how have you thought about building your network? So I'm very fortunate. My mom started a 501c3 herself, and it definitely made an impact on me. I have always worked in the for-profit space. I've been a capitalist, maybe even accused of being a greedy capitalist. I've built businesses. I've tried to solve problems in a for-profit way, and I, I've done that successfully multiple times. But right now, I really do believe, I've heard, I heard this great quote, it's, I think that the secret to living is giving. And I think that the best way to build a network and the way that I've been able to surround myself with incredible people who are much smarter, who have accomplished much more, who I learn from every single day is not by asking, but by giving, by figuring out what they need help with and being in a position to do that. And I think for anyone listening, changing the dynamic of how you're approaching people you want to work with by saying, what can I do for you? And not being so commercial upfront of, hey, you know, come sit on my board of directors, come invest in my next company. Those things all get, I never even look at those messages in my LinkedIn inbox, or I never even look at those, those emails. It's when somebody is, what is your biggest problem right now? And how can I solve it for you? And I'm not looking to get paid and I'll work for you for free. I'm like, hey, that's an individual I want to meet. That's someone I want to talk to. I see something in them. That's great. Um, and for someone who's just starting or someone who's trying to build the network, we're all humans. We're all in, this, in a post-COVID world where all of us are isolated and working at home and we don't have this sort of human interactions we had before. It's such a beautiful thing to connect, to connect in any way, be it over coffee or at an event. And, 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 and you know, I think it was important for me to go to Israel and do this face-to-face, -face, but connecting with people, figuring out what their needs are and offering to help them for free with no expectation of anything in return. Don't be transactional with it. By the way, if you're transactional with it, it kills the giving, right? Hey, hey, I did that for you. You owe me something that mm -hmm. kills it give without the expectation of receiving and 
I think that's the secret of living a beautiful life, right? And I think that is that is the best way of networking. To be clear, I'm not trying to network right now, but probably the last three weeks is the best networking I've ever done. I never thought I'd be sitting in cabinet meetings in Israel. I've never entered Israel in a special way and gotten special clearance or met anyone significant in Israel. I'm just a regular tourist going to hang out on the beach in Tel Aviv and go to the wall in Jerusalem and go to the Dead Sea. So I think when you do something without an expectation of something in return, genuinely trying to help our people, it's amazing how many other incredible people we've gotten to meet in this process, donors and government dignitaries alike. Yeah, we've talked about that a lot on the network that you can always be of service, even people who think like, well, who the heck am I? I'm just, you know, a student who graduated or something like you can always come to a connection from a place of service and think about building a network over the long haul versus networking, which feels transactional. Like it's a slight twist of phrase, but I think building that network over time there's give and take, but it's not, it doesn't start as a quid pro quo. A hundred percent. You always remember who did what for you. Um, whether you realize you do or not, you do it subconsciously. I know who's been helpful to me and I know who hasn't. And I'm more inclined to help the helpers, right? I want to help the helpers. And that, I think that's the case for everybody. So be a helper and wow, is it soul cleansing? It feels good to help. We end our episodes by asking guests for a tip listeners can take straight to the bank. I, I suppose for this, what advice would you give someone who's trying to figure out the best way to help Israel right now? We need balanced people more than ever, sort of to put the own, your own oxygen mask on before assisting the person next to you. I think why I can be effective here is I've taken care of a lot of my boxes so I can be full-time focused on this right now. I'm in that sort of situation to do that, but you know, for better or for worse, I think my advice would be uh, put on your own oxygen mask before assisting the person next to you. You have to take care of yourself. You have to get yourself to stop crying to get to a point of where do you want to focus? And then once you've done that, then I think you can really put yourself in a position to help. And it doesn't require money. It doesn't require wealth. And you don't have to be in the best shape and you don't have to join the front lines to fight. But it has to be something unique and spiritual and relevant to you. And some people are fighting the meme war online, fighting the spread of misinformation. Some people are answering phones and call centers. Some people are raising money from donors. Some people are packing pallets and boxes and other people like me are chartering airplanes. And I, I would value each of those things equally, but we need it all. And holistically and collectively together, I think, I think that's going to lead to the successful outcome here. Money Rehab is a production of Money News Network. I'm your host, Nicole Lappin. Money Rehab's executive producer is Morgan Lavoy. Our researcher is Emily Holmes. Do you need some money rehab? And let's be honest, we all do. So email us your money questions, moneyrehab at moneynewsnetwork.com to potentially have your questions answered on the show or even have a one-on-one -on -one intervention with me. And follow us on Instagram at moneynews and TikTok at moneynewsnetwork for exclusive video content. And lastly, thank you. No, seriously, thank you. Thank you for listening and for investing in yourself, which is the most important investment you can make.